Children of the world, parents of the world, this is for you. I'm Rowena. And I'm April. We are best friends and moms to five young athletes and sisters to Olympic champions. We have a mission to inspire our kids and your kids through the stories of champions. Who am I? I am a champion. Who am I? I am a champion. Who am I? I am a champion. Champion Tribe, welcome. We get to meet Johnny Mosley today. He is considered the top 10 most influential skiers of all time. Of all time. Did you hear that? His vision and courage was literally the catalyst that changed the sport of freestyle skiing forever. Johnny is from the Bay Area in California. He grew up with April. Um, He is the 1998 Olympic champion and then broke convention completely at the 2002 Olympics, ruffled some feathers and moved skiing towards the place that free fried skiing is now. Johnny is also a TV personality, a speaker, a brand ambassador, a product developer, and a family man raising two boys. We're so pumped to dig into your brain and your stories and learn, Johnny. Welcome, Johnny. We are so excited to chat with you today and happy that you're here. So thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Great to be here. Hi, April. Uh, Johnny, thanks. Um, okay, let's start from the beginning. How did it all begin? How'd the journey begin? When did the love of skiing begin? Uh, you know, similar to April, it was Squaw Valley or Palisades Tahoe, excuse me, it's gone through a name change. Uh, when I was, you know, four years old or so, kind of your typical uh, weekend skier from the Bay Area. My dad loved, my dad and mom both loved to ski, so they brought the three of us up there every weekend and put us right in the programs and, uh, immediately, you know, God, we got a couple lessons and then, and then straight into a program called mighty mites there, which is a great program for kids. That's sort of the, the beginning of the race program. And, uh, you know, around nine years old, freestyle skiing was starting to, you know, get on the map being considered for the Olympics. And, uh, my brothers and I just, you know, my, my older brother loved skateboarding and surfing and anything that had to do with that culture. And so he, he got us into it. I I pretty much loved uh, just, I think, being hanging with my brothers, being at the mountain. I loved all the like the team environments. I loved all the, the, the Friday nights in the car with my with my bros. Um, I would say the love of it really started with just wanting to, to, to try to keep up with my older brothers. Oh, I love that story. That's like <laughs> Julia's success story for her gold medal too, following me around. <laughs> so how? Yeah, because so you're, the- you're you're the you're the oldest, right? And then yeah. Julia is two years below. She's four, or she's four, four. years. Yeah. Okay, four. So I had a yeah, and then and then uh, Sarah is then she's nine years younger than me. So oh snap! So cool. yeah, so we had a uh, you know three boys. And okay. I'm five years younger than the next one up. And then they're a year apart. So oh, okay. um, I was like, you know, a really little brother. And, you know, they, they really took care of me. Yeah. So that's and because the more I look back on it, you know, I think people sometimes think, you know, I, I like I love the sport of skiing, but so much of it is is the environment that you're introduced to it in. And, uh, you know, I, and, and, and who, you know, my brothers made it so fun and included me in everything and and uh they would take me around the mountain like when we weren't skiing together and even when we were on ski teams they would get me involved and so i just am super grateful to them and i had a very lucky environment where they were dragging me into everything they were doing so yeah i think that's an important factor 
Plus, that's like the the chance that you get to like hang out. Like, I better keep up, otherwise, I'm not going to be able to keep up, you know, hang out with them. So it's like such a inspiration in itself, just to be like, I better get good enough so I can like. There's go five sprites. So, so I'm yeah. the. And, yeah. and really, are, is it I'm just you and oldest, Tora, so or are there more? Story was the same as yours. Yeah. Oh snap! Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, we, do, the, the little, the little guys always benefit from all the experiences of the older ones for sure. Oh, I'm for seeing better, it in my For kids. worse. Yeah. No, true. <laughs> but I'm seeing it in my kids. I'm like, oh my gosh, the younger one is doing so many things so much earlier because he's always trying to do is keep up with his brother. It's like, oh, yeah. I gotta be cool enough. He's going to think I'm cool. If I can do this, I gotta try to do it, you know? It's yeah. literally the motivation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, having two boys myself, my the older one is really he's only, you know, a few years older than the other one, but you skip so many steps when you're the younger one. Even as a parent, you're just like, Yeah, he could go right to that. We don't need to bother with that step that we thought was important. Just he could go. And they end up like stepping up. And uh, you know, obviously brothers are so much more um less you know, brother, br- older older siblings as parents are are much less uh, protective, right? I mean, they're protective in a good way. They they make sure you don't die, but they're they're less hover, they're less likely to hover than your parents. So that's that's a good totally. thing. <laughs> so true. So okay, but where I, were we? Where yeah, were we? where oh. were we? Well, t- actually, <laughs> I do want you to dive more into the whole like living in the Bay Area and then being an Olympic champion. Because that is, for those of you guys that don't know what we're talking about, Bay Area is about, well, back when you grew up skiing, even though the the distance has stayed the same with traffic, it was, you know, three and a half, three hour drive, three and a half hour drive. So it's, it's amazing to see that um, you were able to do what you did in your sport living so far away. So I don't even know, tell, tell us like, was at a certain age, did you move up there or did you, was it always a weekend thing for you or? You just loved it so much. You guys were up there so much. It, yeah, we, there was no intention for us to be Olympic skiers of any sort. I mean, particularly because we were from the Bay Area um, and we were just weekend hacks. Right. And uh, uh, but, you know, and I, I think that's probably one of the reasons we felt, you know, free to go to transition into freestyle is because we weren't thinking Nobody was thinking we were going very far in anything. I mean, you know, my brother, my older brother, Rick, was a pretty good little racer. But still, you know, unless you're really going for it. So, but my parents, I will say, I mean, ha- being a weekend parent right now, I don't know how they did it. I mean, my dad, I think, you know, both my dad and mom were just dedicated. And so uh, they did not miss. And uh, it was like, I think it was just therapeutic for them. I think it. They, my dad saw a lot of satisfaction in, in, um, having three boys being able to drop them off Saturday morning or have, first of all, have them in the car Friday night. Like, you know, you pretty much know your family's with you out of trouble. You're not driving around, picking them up at their friends' houses, which I notice is what's, you know, kind of happens when you have kids is you end up just doing a lot of busy work all weekend where if you can get them in the car and get them going in the same direction, get them on a ski team all weekend where they're out on the mountain and, you know, being on the mountain, once you hit the mountain and you're with a crew, that's the ultimate freedom, right? Like for a kid, you don't have to hang out with your parents. You've got a crew, you're, you're mixing with other people. You've got coaches that, you know, we're fortunate at, 
Palisades to have this, you know, awesome coaches. Pretty much every coach you have is so it's got some kind of pedigree that's ridiculous. You don't even know it as a kid, but they're connecting with the kids. So good influences everywhere. And, you know, you're you're out there all day long doing something healthy. So that's how it started. Um, I don't know if it's repeatable now. I, I, I look, uh, you know, my kids are in the weekend program. Uh, it seems like, you know, particularly with racing, you know, to to really compete, you, you pretty much need to move up there. Uh, we we eventually did start spending a lot more time up there, right? Like my brothers went to uh, the ski academy in Squaw, uh, and so they moved up there in high school and were, you know, obviously skiing more. I I did not. I wanted to, um, but I did not. Um, I started. I stayed down here for high school, but I went to a high school that allowed me to take a, a lot of time off, a small private school. So I started skiing, obviously, all summer. I pretty much, by the time I was 13, I had pretty much, you know, committed to the fact that I wanted to, you know, go full into to freestyle skiing. My brother, my one of my brothers was still, still going strong too. And I kind of eliminated I mean, I still played like high school soccer, but I pretty much eliminated everything else in my life. Spent the summers, you know, as you know, going to Mount Hood and trying to go to the water ramps to learn to flip and and then going to New Zealand and, and skiing down there. So I started to shift my life towards it. And then I would take a significant amount of time off during the winter to prep for contests, either division championships, you know, junior nationals, nationals, things like that. So it started to become... Uh, like a homeschool, <laughs> a self-independent learning environment, uh, and so I just really had to like keep up with my keep up with my studies via fax machine days. at the time. <laughs> um, so, so did you? You said at thirteen you focused on freestyle. Was that the age where you like? Did was there a moment where you had this dream like I'm going to be an Olympic champion, or did that grow later or earlier? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing to to uh, that I've. I've thought about a lot because I think people do when they ask you about that, they, they ask, you know, was it your Olympic, you know, was that always Mm. your dream? And I think in the beginning, I I didn't want to disappoint people. And I'd be like, Oh yeah. You know, I dreamed of that since I was a little guy, you know, cause that's kind of your typical story, but it's, it's never that simple. Um, I, and I don't, and I, I, you know, like I said, my, my older brother was the one who got us, you know, into the newly formed freestyle team at Squall when I was about nine, and I was the only guy, you know, part of part of it was a young, part of getting into a young sport uh, at the time is you don't have a lot of competition, especially at the age of nine. I mean, I was probably like one of five kids in all of the Tahoe Basin competing in freestyle, so I had a lot of like positive feedback. Yeah, dude, you're doing great. You know, like when you're the youngest at anything, everyone's giving you love. Um, and, and so I enjoyed that. And I think I enjoyed that feeling of sort of, you know, that support. Um, even if I wasn't, I don't even know where I stood at that point. I mean, I imagine I showed some talent, but how much talent, you know, when you're only competing against like 20 other kids, what's, what's, you know, how much talented are you? So, uh, so then as time went on though, I started to dig in and, you know, I went, I went to my first junior nationals and I was 11 and I got smoked by all the, the kids that grew up in steamboat and all that stuff and had way more hours on skis than I did. And that kind of lit the fire in me. And and I started to sort of, you know, you know, I think agitate my parents for a little more of this, a little more of that, you know, and um, you know, can I go here? And my older brother was helping me with that too. Um, And then, I really put gas, like I won junior nationals for everyone under 19 when I was 15. I went to the, uh, you know, back East and won it on a particularly tough course. And, and that's, 
that kind of I, I think before then I had the notion of the Olympics in my mind. Uh, you know, I certainly I love the Olympics like I would, you know, loved openings, the opening ceremony. I don't think I ever truly thought it was something that I could, you know, do. Um, but when I hit that milestone, I was like, oh, OK, now you know, and, and I remember every, every little step. Right. And I think that's important to remember. Like when I got beat, when I was 11 at junior nationals, I remember like every morning, or I, I'm not like a super religious person, but I would say a prayer at night. And, uh, and it was just like a, a prayer that my mom basically like would recite to me when I was a kid and I kept doing it. And it just was something I would do, but like, I'd be like, you know, please watch over all my family, make sure we're safe. And I want to win junior nationals. So it would be like, <laughs> it would be like my, my little, <laughs> my little add on. Uh, so, I mean, I was, I was clearly starting to think about it. And then when that happened, then I started to like, you know, look at the next level. And so I don't think I, at that point I was, always like, Oh, I got to win the gold Olympic gold. I mean, it's just, it's, and, and I think that's important in goal setting is to set a realistic goal for what you're getting after. I mean, it's great to dream about these major macro events, but you know, those, you, you gotta, you gotta kind of think of the ones that are right in more, a little bit more in your wheelhouse. So I, I think that whole notion of, of dreaming of it that, you know, do you, I, I guess what I'm saying is you don't have to have had it as a dream from the time you were four or five for it to be a I reality. Love so end, much. I no, I love that you're mentioning this because people find their passions sometimes when they're older and like, like you, it wasn't even a thing. I actually love that you mentioned that prayer that you said, because we hear a lot of our champions. No, serious. They talk about their affirmations, you know, and that to me, when I hear that, please let me win June every night before bed. I mean, that is living on purpose as a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 funny. It's it's not a story I would tell. I, I think I've started to put more more weight on it, like you said, because as as time goes on, as I start to reflect back on what what the hell did I do? I mean, what, what, how did I, you know, what, what, what who was that guy? Like, you look back, and it's like such a weird weird little sport I was in, and and what happened. So I, sometimes I think about like, well, especially in light of having kids and and watching them go through the motions at about that age. I, you know, I do think stuff like that is interesting. And I especially focus on with them, the, the, those, those moments of quietness, you know, the moments before you go to sleep, the moments when you wake up, it just seems to be the only time. It seems to be an important time when, when you can process a lot of, of what you're, what you're thinking about and where your, your mind is. And, um, and you can do a lot of good work in those in those moments, like especially in the morning before you get up when no one's bugging you and you're sort of up and you can, you can sort of start. I mean, I've thought of a lot of different tricks in those times and you can start to, you know, I feel like overnight your brain can really process a lot of things and you can get up and get after it. So, but I digress. Yes. No. It, it, and I like what you said. It's more of an affirmation. Like I said, you know, we were a church on Thanksgiving family, you know, that's it. Um, and, and I guess Christmas, and Christmas, maybe. And, uh, but I, I did, I was talking to, I was talking to people at the time, who, you know, to God and whoever else was uh, in the, above my top bunk who wasn't there. So <laughs> I think you're right. So a little self-talk goes a long way for sure. 
Well, then fast forward from then to winning a gold medal at the Olympics and tell everyone what it was like to walk into that Olympics and then to to win that. That I mean, such an amazing feat. And yeah, tell us about it. Details. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's such a it's it, the the whole the whole process, the whole Olympic, you know, uh, um, you know, qualification process, and and just being there is is uh it's intense you know it's it's an intense uh thing it's i would say it's it's not like you imagine it you know i think it's you know like i remember distinctly watching the opening ceremony and and as a kid and just just looking at all the different countries and the flags and just having this incredible moment of of uh you know of amazement and then fast forward to my Olympic experience going into 1998, you know, I, I had almost made, I, I had the opportunity to make the Olympics in 94 in Lillehammer. It was my first year on the team. And, uh, I, I was, you know, I'm a cocky guy. Like I pretty much think I can win anything. I feel like I could be good at everything. Like I have a major protective ego. Right. And, uh, and, it served me well in most instances and not always in others, but I, I, I was, I, I got smoked on the, my, my rookie year and did not make that Olympics. And it, and it made me, it made me upset, you know, and, and it wasn't, I, I wasn't even like, well, oh, I'm young. I was like, that's BS. I, I should make it, you know? And I, I really, for hindsight, I was like probably the fifth guy out of, you know, and they took three. So I wasn't really even close. Um, but it, it heavily motivated me to, um, you know, organize my life and, you know, rededicate to all the things and manage, you know, a lot of a lot of an Olympic campaign is management, right, of your time, your coaches, your physical being, your distractions, uh, your your business, money. I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that go into sort of organizing your life so that you can singularly focus on one tiny one goal one moment four years out in the future um and i had my ups and downs you know i i the year after i started to break into the top 10 and kind of in and out i got a fourth here and there but i could never really like maintain that that sort of top five status i turned that around in 96 got a little bit better started i won my first world cup but i really and and won won another one but lost you know the title at the very end and i just I, I wasn't one of those figures that's like dominant right and in order to be a dominant uh you know in order to win the olympics you need to be a dominant figure right like otherwise it's just a roll of the dice you know there's some people that go to the olympics you kind of know that every everyone else is there you know they're going to be unlucky if they don't win it right so and i had noticed that i, I had studied some guys and and been like okay why why do those guys win like every time and the rest of us kind of win once in a while it depends on the course depends on the conditions we're up and down so i started to hack that all um and had a pretty good year and of course then i got worse which happens <laughs> you know i was trying to emulate other guys and and uh so i went down in the standings again and uh you know and then going into the olympic year i i i Basically, like we were up in uh, in uh, and I'm getting to the point here at the Olympics. You see what I did here? I'm no, I love it. But, I love uh, it. It's so good. Um, <laughs> we were we were up in Mount Hood at a training camp, and uh, and the ski team 
to to the co- to the coach's credit, the head coach, he had he had had I think a, a realization within himself that he was a needed a lot of time to be an administrator because he's managing a lot, um, you know, lots of different athletes and schedules and he's got to deal with the ski team and his job. And so he brought in a, like a specialist technical advisor. And I think he saw some of his shortcomings in his ability to be really like a high end technical coach. So he brought this guy in. We all know who knew who he was. He was like a legendary uh, world cup competitor. And then he also, uh, had coached for a long time privately, but not on the ski team. He was the type of guy, he is independently wealthy. He had done his own business. And so he didn't need, you know, he wasn't a guy who needed the money. And, uh, and, and so my, our head coach basically like leaned on him, like, Hey, this is like your duty. Like this team is, they're nothing. Like they've got a couple good guys, but you know, you need to come in and, and, and teach, teach them how to ski basically. And, and, you know, the thing with skiing, what's weird is that it's a team, you know, it's an individual sport, but we, we train as a team and we compete as a team and it's just, it's just weird. So he came in and everyone's jockeying for his attention. Cause you know, you know, how it is on a ski team. It's like, you got your favorites and you spend more time with those guys and building a rapport with a coach is big. And so I basically just like, was like, okay, this guy, no, I gotta, you know, and, and I didn't feel like he was feeling me. Like I felt like he had a, his eye on a couple other guys that he felt like had a better shot, but he, he, right before we were supposed to go home for like a break, he said, Hey, I don't think any of you guys are ready. I feel like, you know, the Olympics is right around the corner and, and he had a chip on his shoulder too, because he, um, when he was competing in moguls, it wasn't in the Olympics. So he was like, you little like punks, like I would have been training till I was bleeding and you guys are going home for a break. He's like, you know, anyone, anyone who wants to stay and train through the break, I've got a house. You can crash on my couch, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm here. And so I was like, you know, the only, I was like, I'm in and everyone else went home and it was just him. It was just me. And, uh, so I ended up like crashing on his futon and, we started to bro out a little bit and we, he, he started showing me all these videos of like all the champions and started to kind of break down what he thought was sort of the thread between all these guys. And it was a very specific move um, that he wanted to work on. And we basically like to, you know, freestyle skiing moguls is complex, right? you got the jump side, you've got the time, you got the moguls, you got the fitness. There's just a lot of moving parts, but he, he really wanted to just bring it down to like the basic mogul turn. And, uh, and he, that's what he thought where my deficiency was, is I just, you know, was inconsistent because of, you know, my lateral, you know, movement and my, my pressure on the inside edge. And we started working together and working together up on the hill. And I thought I was doing it and he didn't think so. And we'd have these, these battles back and forth and like literally yelling at each other on the hill. And, uh, one morning he was like, you got to go, we got to, we got to figure this out. We got to be able to train more. So he's like, I got this idea to build this little like machine. We can train in the garage and on the Hill and we can just get some extra hours. And so I had grew up in a metal shop. So I took it down to the local shop and we made this like little like slide board type thing with metal with bindings on it. And I put my ski boots and rollerblade wheels mounted sideways. And we started just like hammering this thing. Whenever we weren't on the Hill, we'd be hammering this thing. And he'd just be like, I'd have my shirt off and he'd take shorts and he'd be like, just trying to get me to stack on my outside ski. And lo and behold, it started to work. We threw out my boots and we, we changed all that stuff. And I started to have this much more consistent feel and we started to gel. 
long story short, we started to develop this relationship. I, I came out in the first World Cup and got a second. Then I won the next one. And so I solidified my spot to the Olympics. And uh, then I started to – this is a whole sub-story, but at the time, snowboarding had influenced skiing. And there was a whole free skiing movement happening, which I had was kind of part of because a lot of the guys were mogul skiers that were on the tour – and that's when I added the 360 Mew Crab, which was a 360 where you reach down and grab your ski. And because I had that early win, I had the opportunity to start like specifically training just that that trick um, and incorporating it in my run. And so I got the Olympics, and uh, you know I was I had won you know a few World Cups going in, and uh, so I was pretty much the favorite. I mean, anyone who knew, knew I, I kind of had this package and I was skiing really well. And so you're, you're just in this zone and, and everything's compressing around you. The coaches now it's like, I was the biggest shot to win. So, you know, the whole staff is sort of like making sure that you're, it got what you need. And that's a great feeling, but also adds a lot of pressure. And, and I remember and I'm bringing this around because your experience at the Olympics is, we stayed, we, when we got there, first of all, we, we, you know, you get all your gear, you do all this check-in stuff and, uh, we get to the Olympic village. We spend one night there and they're like, okay, now we're going up to our, you know, hotel near the, near the, uh, near the hill because the, the village is like an hour away. We're not going to drive. You're not going to be in a car and a bus for an hour every day. And so you're like, okay, so I guess we don't stay in the Olympic village. And we kind of knew this and I thought that was a good idea. And uh, we get up there, we're like in this like youth hostel, basically, and we have our own chef and all that stuff. And then like, they're like, okay, opening ceremonies, and everyone's thinking they're going to opening ceremony, the opening ceremony, and the coach is like, no opening ceremony. Like, you're not, you're no way. Like, what, you can't, I've, he's like, I've done three Olympics. It's a six-hour event. You've got to get there before everyone gets in. You know, you're standing around, and then you, you march through, and it's cold, and then you get back late at night, and you got to train tomorrow. And it was just like, I mean, the other, everybody was like, what? Like, it's the Olympics, like no opening ceremony. Like, that's the best part. Like, that's like the part I dreamed about. And, uh, and uh, there was some like people battled, a couple guys defied him and went. And I was like, no, I didn't, you know, this is, this, I'm not here for that. This is, I hear, I'm here to train and, and I've got a job to do. And so, uh, I guess my point is, is it's a little bit of a different yeah. scene than what you, uh, what you imagine, you know, you're imagining like representing your country and all this stuff. And meanwhile, you're like up in a, uh, in a hostel in the forest, you know, like buck hunkered down and uh <laughs> lifted weights and stretching and getting to the zoo and back and da 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 but but it worked out it was a great experience obviously and um and you know i ended up winning and and then it was just you know chaos from yeah there i'm out. literally thinking through this whole story and i was like wait <laughs> so wait, my god I, I went to the opening ceremonies but i didn't get win gold can i go back can i do it again <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do, know, I, but I do think also freestyle always competes in the beginning half of the Olympics, right? So it is, yeah. it's kind of like, that is your like time. So I, I get that part for you guys. Cause, um, it's a great point. And there's no, I mean, the, you know, plenty of people have gone to the opening and won. So, <laughs> <laughs> so amazing though. So, so rad. I, I want to go back a little bit to, oh, there were so many, as you were telling that story, it brought so many things I wanted you to dig into. Um, 
But basically, that decision that you made to, well, it's a sacrifice, really, you sacrifice not going home, like everyone did to be with your friends and family. It sounds like that decision to stick with that coach really changed the course of everything. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think, um, and I think that's something I think of a lot. Uh, and, you know, especially as a dad, you know, you look at those moments and, and I, I try to, I don't know, it's hard to relay it to people, but there are, there are certain times when, um, you know, you, you do have to do the hard things and, 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 and say no to stuff and, and, uh, and, try to figure out, you know, postpone things and put things off for, for what you want to do. And, um, and, uh, and, and, but they, but they can make a difference and sometimes they don't always, but you know, you've got to take, yeah, I, I feel like that was, that was a pivotal moment, right. That changed the whole trajectory of my ski career and, and my life. So yeah, absolutely. And you're such an influential um, person in the sport, obviously, of freestyle skiing. I mean, I I kind of feel like the whole sport is owes it to you for your innovation, really, because you really made it what it is, made it interesting, made everybody want to watch and see. But you were a little you were so far ahead that it actually you like talk about a little bit that whole progression, like you were progressing kind of faster than the sport was, which in the end, you know, maybe you didn't get what probably other people felt you deserved. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So the, you're talking, you know, when you, when you fast forward to the 2002 Olympics, when I did go to the opening ceremony, I ended up fourth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I had to go to the opening. I mean, I can't miss it twice. But no, that did not, was not the reason I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't medal. Um, yeah, that's, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot to that question. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of answer to that question. I, I freestyle skiing for me, you know, I, and I think I straddled the era from when it was hyper creative and, and hyper loose to when it, it became more grown up. Cause, uh, you know, when I was nine and mid eighties, it still had a little bit of, you know, little bit of wildness to it a little bit of like you know it wasn't as rigid and the moguls weren't weren't manufactured and you know that it was a little more loose and it was one of the things that attracted to us to the sport i think i'd mentioned you know my brother was a big punk music freestyle skateboarder guy and you know in 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 those sports and in freestyle skiing and snowboarding you're not that people don't people will look right by like a result they'll be like you're you know, oh great, you you won that contest, but can you do a hand plant or like you know you won that, but but can you actually do the hardest trick in, in you know the most current trick in the so that you know that that people were doing like did you see that guy do that so that mentality was like in me and I didn't like it when people were doing stuff that I couldn't do or and and I, so I kind of always enjoyed seeing the progression of the sport and, and tried to stay up with it and, and then also tried to push it. And, and uh, you know, like I said, during about, you know, 90, if you look at 90, 92, 93, 94-ish, you know, uh, snowboarding was having a big influence on skiing. And there was a group of kids out of, uh, out of, uh, out of Quebec that started skiing backwards, grabbing their skis, and they were mobile skiers, and but they were a little younger than me. And so um, I got exposed to them when they came on the World Cup tour and, and a little bit in Black Home. It's a small world, you know. And I was like, oh, snap. 
these guys are doing some cool stuff and uh, I want to, I want to hang out with them. And this was sort of the beginning of the whole free skiing as we know it. That's now the Olympic sport and all that, but this was very early days. And uh, you know, I had a very deep aerial background, so I had done, I was a combined skier. So I did ballet moguls and aerial. So I had a very uh, broad uh, skill set. I could do triple twisting, triple backflips on snow by that point. So pretty much like, a guitarist that's trained classically, like I could just look at what they were doing and I could pick it up, you know, pretty much right away. So, uh, I jumped in right, right away with those guys and, and started, you know, riffing and learning what they knew. And then eventually, you know, trying to create my own stuff. And, uh, it just so happened that, you know, like I ripped off the 360 mute grab from JP Eau Claire for the, for the 98 Olympics. And then those guys were too young and they didn't make the Olympics. And then they all quit and went off and started, you know, their own genre, basically created free skiing. And so I jumped off too. After 98, I was like, you know, I'm leaving moguls behind. It's X games, it's slope style, it's big air. This is where it's at. And that's where I want to be. This to me, that's like freestyle is a moving target and you better move with it if you want to stay relevant. And just personally, that's would get me up in the morning to get out there, right? Like I get tired of doing the same thing over again. And I didn't even think I'd go back to the Olympics. I was like, you know, I won in 98. I've done what I want to do in that sport. I won the World Cup. I've done the, I won the overall a couple of times. Like I'm all about free ride, you know, this, let's do this. And then in um, getting ready for the, what, uh, 99 X Games, I think. I, I started like thinking about, well, what am I going to do for this big air contest coming up? You know, it's like the first big air contest for skiers. And we were back at squad. I was kind of with a couple couple of the the, sh- the guys there, like Evan Rapp, some guys that became known free skiers. And, and I started, uh, I, I, I had this like visualization for what this trick in snowboarding called uh, a rodeo flip. And I really loved that trick. And I had tried it earlier in the summer and absolutely spanked myself in, in hood, uh, in Whistler on the wind lip. I dis- dislocated my shoulder. And, and, um, uh, so I had gotten back to it, uh, a little bit later and, uh, took it to the water ramp and started to perfect it. And I started doing it on snow. And anyway, it became my own trick. It was a flat spin 720, And, uh, they call it, we called it the dinner roll. And I, I did it in the X games, uh, in 99 and got silver with it. And then I won the U S open with it, the U S open, a slope style the following year. And it, I did it to 900. It became kind of my signature move. And I thought to myself, Holy smokes, if I could do this in the moguls, that would be really cool because obviously the Olympics was a couple years away way, but there was no event for me in the Olympics. And, but I I don't even know if I was truly motivated by, I mean, clearly I had (laughs) plenty of people that like my sponsors and stuff that I I had people who were interested in me going back to the Olympics. I mean, I think people were scratching their head. Like what, Mike, my agent was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, (laughs) what is this free skiing stuff? Like you're off, you're like in Alaska, you know, skiing big mountains. And then you're over here with these, like, cause at the time, this stuff was marginal is marginal. It was very small time. And I had signed all these deals after the Olympics. And, and I think they were all like, well, (laughs) what's going on here, dude. And so I had it in the back of my mind and I thought to myself, well, okay, if I could do this trick in the moguls, that would give me like a lot of motivation and it would be very cool. Like I could come back and be like my encore. So I had to get back. I had to go like beg the ski team to give me a couple starts so I could get back on the team they wouldn't give me a, like a full spot, so I had to go like win an event and and uh, fight my way back just to get in the running to qualify. <laughs> 
And so I had to go back, and, and uh, it was a long road back. I had to get back in shape because uh, you, you know, you're in decent shape as a free skier, but you're not doing the type of stuff you need for a mogul, Olympic mogul run. So kicked my ass, and then, um, you know, got, came right out, got hurt right away. And uh, I was just not, you know, and then I came back and I got a, got a podium, which put me on the team for the following year. And then I was like, then I was, I still hadn't done this trick though on snow. Cause now I'm just trying to get like, I need to get back on the ski team. So I'm not, I'm not, and, and they don't even know about this trick. And so now I'm, you know, a year out from the O2 games and I want to do this trick, but I've never done it in the moguls. And it's potentially illegal because it's inverted. And they, so I had to, I had to take a whole uh, video of the trick from four different sides. And I, I did it in the video so that it wasn't inverted because I knew they would not allow all of a sudden change the rule. You're out from the Olympics to let everyone do backflips or, or, you know, inverted tricks. So I was like, it's not really inverted. See, my feet are level with my head. And so we submitted that. it, <laughs> we submitted it to the FIS and, and uh, they took a vote and just barely approved it by one vote. And uh, so I was allowed to do it, but I still couldn't do it at that time. I still ha- was not competing with it, but at least I had it approved. So I, I, I started to kind of do it, you know, off the sides and stuff, little like areas where I could, but not competing with it. Finally, I, I won a World Cup the year of the Olympics, which gave me my spot. And I immediately left the World Cup and went to Steamboat and had a course built for me and started training it like nonstop. And I finally got it to a point where I it was, you know, ready for prime time. Like I could do it with proficiency because it was a it was at the point where I could do it. But it was like, A, it was ugly. B, I had to slow down a lot. C, it was like, I would not land it very much. What were the other coaches and athletes saying? Like, I know it was illegal for this, but were they all like cheering you on or were they hating you? Yeah, that's, you know, it's a great, no one's, no one's ever asked me that. And it's an interesting topic because, uh, it was weird. Okay. Because it was not all positive. Like, uh, a, I had come back and, you know, displaced someone that would had been training for since the last quad since early in the quad, My all the coaches were different and I brought my coach back. So we were already causing like a little bit of a, of an uproar. Nobody was really seeing the light. Like I was like, to me, it was so clear that this is where the sport was going. But at that point, that's not where it was. And then the, the other part was, they couldn't do it. Right. Cause I had this like diverse aerial background and all this stuff and nobody was going to, nobody sort of had that. So it was not like a welcoming thing. I mean, I had maybe a, you know, one guy in my camp that was the guy who went to FIS and helped me and uh, get it approved. But the other coaches were not, they were, they were basically like, what is this circus show Johnny's doing over here? Um, athletes, I think were, you know, half and half, some guy, you know, you know how it is on the team. There's always like, everyone's competitors against each other. So, uh, you know, you got your bros that are kind of like, yeah, that's cool. And then the other guys are like, you know, just trying to kick your ass and show you, you shouldn't have, you know, uh, that don't bother. Um, so it was a mix. You, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't, I felt a little bit, you know, I, d- I definitely didn't feel like everyone was super stoked yeah. to, to, to support this I f- effort. I feel like um, this is... It was mixed, yeah. I would say. And in sport, you know, I f- this little story I feel like is a microcosm. Anyone who changes anything or is an innovator, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a lonely path. And now, I mean, tell us where it is now. Isn't everyone doing what you did or are th- am I wrong there? 
Yeah. So what ended up happening was, um, you know, they approved the trick and they gave it a degree of difficulty, which every trick gets a DD. I went and I competed with it in, in Salt Lake and I ended up fourth, uh, you know, and I, I was, you know, the component, there's four components in moguls. 50% of it is turns in line. 25% is your jumps and 25% is your speed. I had to slow down and I wasn't able to go as fast as everyone else. I thought that my error score would make up for it, um, but it didn't. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, you know, the mistake I think I made was not arguing at the inception when they accepted the trick that it should be worth more because they made it worth the same point value as much easier tricks, like what's called a quad twister, where you can go straight off the jump, you, you know, you twist your ski side to side four times and land. It allows you to, you know, be out of control, hit the jump and just hit it and do the trick. Whereas this trick is much more sensitive. You need to be set up. You can't be, you know, out of control when you hit it. So I take it fully on myself and my naive self going into the Olympics for why I got fourth. However, the following year, you know, at the end of the season, the FIS met and they changed all the rules and allowed inverted tricks and, you know, made my trick worth more. So and it and it obviously changed the whole sport. Now, you know, people don't even do quad twisters anymore. It's all some version of what I did. Um, and they're obviously have added a lot more, you know, rotations and aerial stuff. And so which is great doesn't doesn't do me much good and and it's a lesson but it, and it is a lesson to learn it's a bit of a cautionary tale that if you are innovating um it is hard it is a lonely place and it's 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 a quagmire of you know ego and and trying to like because personally it was something i wanted to do and i i fully am a guy who's like wants to be cool and so i i fully recognize that if i was just sober about it and was like, well, I got I want to win this Olympics that I would have abandoned the trick and gone to something more in line with what they were scoring. I mean, I guess I was more naive. I thought I could overcome it. I thought the judges would see the value in it. And I think that's something that I can tell you a story that really illustrates the point is um, uh, Sean White, when he went to the Olympics in, I believe, 2010, he did double McTwist, first double McTwist and uh, and. He that was when he had the Red Bull ramp, you know, half pipe built for him out in Silverton that all the snowboarders were pissed off about because he, you know, had all these resources and he didn't invite anyone to train on it. And it was the first time people used a half pipe into an airbag and he had it all like in secret and he trained the double McTwist there. And then he came out and he started actually competing with it the year of the Olympics. And uh, and there's a Wall Street Journal article of a reporter who said, well, why, you know. Why did you weren't you afraid someone was going to rip it off? I mean, you started doing it in December and the Olympics weren't till February. And he said, "Yeah, you know, I thought of that. I wanted to, you know, I would like to keep it under wraps, but he's he's like I was afraid I'd suffer from the Johnny Mosley effect." And, you know, I don't even know. I'm not I'm not close with Sean. Uh, he's obviously, you know, was was studying it a little bit. And what he meant by it and he was totally right is what he did is he didn't want to surprise the judges with you know he wanted them to see it and understand it and understand how much harder it is than the other than the other tricks and you know allow the organization allow the 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 fist to understand it and all that stuff and uh so he started you know literally having like judges stand there and watch him do it and then compare it and he started competing with it so that they weren't you know he, he was laying the groundwork and that's something i always say to people who are thinking about doing stuff that's 
that's innovative is you can't forget that you need to, you know, you can't expect everyone to understand what you're doing automatically. You need to go out there and, and not, you know, sell it a little bit. You got to lay the groundwork for what it is and why it's different and, and, you know, give people a chance to understand what you're doing. And I think that's, that's important in anything outside of sport uh, and a lesson that I've learned as well. So. It reminds me so much of Tora, actually, because Tora had a similar journey. She was very innovative and same thing. Hers was kind of in a way reversed. Her metal medals were reversed. She was, you know, didn't get a podium and then won. But she was like the judges didn't know how to score her. So, I mean, it's amazing because you do need people like yourself in in those sports because it is what changes it. So it's rad that you're part of that, like you know, innovating a sport. And it led you to, isn't that what led you to being a host for Saturday Night, Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live? <laughs> or how'd that, isn't that how that came about or no? Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah. Which one, the, uh, the dinner roll around the world? So. Or yeah. The, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, I, that's what, that is, that is true. I, I, I was hired. I mean, they, they, they called me for Saturday Night Live, you know, right. I guess it might've been right before, the dinner roll, actually, I think they had sort of, um, I don't know what the timing was for it, but I did figure out, I mean, they were looking for an Olympian, right? So I wasn't picked out of the blue. The NBC was cross promoting. So they were going to, you know, it was right after the Olympics. And, uh, but I did, I did get some Intel on why they picked me. Right. Um, there's a couple of, they were sitting around, you know, and they were trying to like have the list of potential Olympians that they were looking to host. And, and, uh, I remember cause this guy, Brendan, uh, Sinet, who, uh, was a skier was like, he was interning there. Basically. He was like a, like a, like a guy who goes and gets you coffee basically. And, but he was involved in the, uh, in the, and he spoke up and was like, you gotta get Johnny Mosley. I mean, what are you doing? And so, uh, they all researched and they, I think they do. And they'd seen, they, I think they had just seen my antics um, from 98 through and uh, and had determined that I would, you know, be willing to probably, you know, wear a tutu and sing and dance and, and do the things that uh, you need to do to be on SNL. That, that's as far as I know. I mean, I think the, obviously my performance in 02 definitely, you know, inspired them a lot of the skits and and the writing they did yeah. so uh oh, okay but yeah good. yeah and that that's was... and so that's <laughs> led to that's your career now right you're in media and presenting and speaking and oh. yeah so that that's exactly so after in SN while after we did Saturday Night Live um like I think we got a call the next either that night or the next morning from MTV and uh and they found us somehow, um, and my and they said, "Hey, can you can you come in?" And we saw you on Saturday Night Live. We want you to come in and audition. And so uh, I just went in and and I did like a I thought for TRL or something, you know, the typical stuff you see. And so I did an audition, and it was very loose and just basically talking to the camera. And I don't know what I did. And then they hired me for what became. Uh, Road Rules Real World Challenge. And so I walked right into basically a, you know, primetime type TV role and learned a lot. And uh, I was pretty much ready to go anyway. I it made a nice transition for me. And then, uh, yeah, I, I started doing a lot of TV work after that. Yeah. So <laughs> just a fortunate set of circumstances. And 
that all worked what out. What is it? The the world reward rewards the courageous. Because I mean, I just love that story of you going out like not to win the gold medal, but you were just so set in your like, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna fight for this. Like where I see the sport going. You were a visionary, like a man ahead of his mm-hmm. times. And I that's I love that end of the story. Like you were rewarded for that, even maybe not with the double gold medal, but. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that's right. Um, and I'm still thinking about that. No, uh, never goes, never goes away. Uh, no, no. Um, no, I, I think it's, it's, you're right. Now that I, you know, when you look back and, and I'm not gonna, you know, I was, I, it wasn't, I didn't want it. A lot of people thought I did it on purpose, knowing I would lose and all that stuff. And, and I didn't. And, but I will say looking back, I, I, I think you're right. I think, uh, um, uh, one thing I did learn, even starting with the 98 Olympics, is that I remember after I won with the 360 Mucrab, people really not only remembered the run, but they remembered specifically what I did. They remembered that I did something unique. And obviously, it, it helped a lot, right? The judges, it made it easy for the judges to give me that that medal in, in 98. And so I kind of learned from that. And, and And I think you're right. Over time, people will recognize when you are uh, passionate about something, when you are, uh, uh, you know, sort of doing something for, I guess, the 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 true, you know, uh, good of what you're trying to do. Like, I genuinely felt like that's where the sport was going. That's what I was interested in, and I, w- I was kind of, you know, uh, following those 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 hopes and dreams. And but but it's rocky, right? You don't always get rewarded for it right away. You have ups and downs. Um, but I think long-term you're right. I think you do, you know, I I don't think I would be still in this career and still able to sort of, you know, uh, uh, continue on if, if I hadn't sort of made those choices, which obviously didn't net me two golds, but they, they certainly sort of, uh, allowed me a lot of other opportunities and allowed me to, you know, keep going. So I, I think you're right. I think there is something, you do get rewarded for, for being, being brave um, and sort of going out and and taking some risk there. I think the only, the only thing to think about is it's not always in the short term. Sometimes you got to wait for it. And so, um, but it does seem to always come back around though. I I mean, I, I'm still, still in that process. Right. But it does seem to, to loop back around and, and sometimes the things that you do don't immediately get, get, uh, you know, rewarded in the way you you thought they would, but but they tend to over the long term. But I think part of that too, just from watching your career and um, you know, seeing what you've done is you've been very you've gone you've gone for what you wanted. And I think that's something that a lot of our listeners can learn from. Just even, you know, at a young age, going after for sponsors and writing up, you know, proposals and stuff like that. Not just waiting for it to come to you, but really and and you can see that even now with your career post skiing is that you're still you're so good at that so I don't know if you have any advice for them like that things that have kind of helped you that they would be like okay wow I can go get look for things myself I don't have to just like wait for them to come for me type thing yeah that and that's that's a great side of uh, that's that's a side of of what I've you know this being I guess a skier or or being in a weird independent uh, sport I guess that a lot of people don't see is yeah I have a full full uh file 
that I keep of rejection letters. Um, <laughs> and, wow. um, when, you know, and, um, and, you know, you, you do get denied, you do get shut down, uh, over time. And, uh, I, I was passionate about trying to be a sponsored skier and, and, um, and early days, a lot of it was just based on me trying to get, you know, say thanks to my parents and get on my own. Uh, and, what age uh, did you start reaching then, out for sponsors yourself? Yeah, yeah. I started. I think I started. Uh, you know, probably around sixteen. I think. And, and did you feel like were you pretty highly driven for like taking the kind of weight off your parents? Like, did you feel that kind of guilt? I guess, for a better word, of the financial strain that being an athlete put on your family, or was it just like? I, I, I did. I did. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I definitely felt like they, they never made me feel that way to be clear. Uh, you know, uh, my brother was, had, had that in him. He always was very like felt, felt, uh, you know, like we were, but they, they never felt that way to, to, I think they, they thought it was like just a awesome thing just like i think you would with your kid if he was if if you show that you're into something i think your parents are going to be like heck yeah let's let's do this let's see where this goes and and even if it's i think what was weird is we were such an obscure sport too i think it's the type of type of sport where i think when you're when your mom's walking through the grocery store and you know it's like you know what's your kid doing he's on the freestyle tour norams freestyle (laughs) tour or like (laughs) Great. Is he going to college? <laughs> not yet. You know, deferred a couple of years. So I think it's like not something you can even hang your hat on. But I think, I think if you if you're showing a genuine interest, and and obviously it's a healthy interest, and it's, uh, and and I think as parents, I think you got you can learn the lesson that it doesn't necessarily matter what it is. Meaning, like I get caught up. Sometimes you get caught up in the macro thing, right? You're like, you're like, hey, don't get into that because the end result isn't great. Like that's such a small deal. Like maybe, maybe let's let's try this over here. Like you know, try tennis or you know, so you know, sports wise or academics. So I think, but I think what you learn in that process, like for example, I think what's sustained me is just the whole, the whole when I was trying to make it into a business, right? Trying to trying to learn how that works and get sponsors. And then you start to learn what, what your what value you're providing to the sponsors. And, you know, I said that my first time on TV was really after that SNL thing, but the truth is, you know, that was my first sort of network stuff, mainstream stuff. But I had been, uh, when I was, you know, on the world cup tour when I was 18 or 19, I went to the local TV station who had been putting a syndicated show up about skiing. And I said, Hey, we're not getting any exposure. We're in Europe. We only have two events a year. Can I send you some, you know, digital videotapes, not digital, like high eight videotapes from the road. And can you, you know, give us a little time. And so they created like a little two minute show within their show of me from the road. So I was already sort of like understanding the marketing or trying to market myself. I was, I'm definitely a self promoter. You know what I mean? I, I, there's no doubt about it. Like, uh, you know, and I think that's, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think as long as you can back it up, it's, it's, it's fine. And and then as long as you understand, and I think I learned a lot from that. I mean, I basically gave myself a little bit of a, an education on, on how sort of all that stuff works from starting from a young age. And my motivation for that is that's, that's interesting. Like what, what motivates a kid to do that? Cause um, 
you know, I think writing letters and asking for money from people is not a really comfortable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> It, it was for me. I I don't know why it was so comfortable. Uh, it was something that I guess I just felt. I felt I felt like it was part of the competition. Like yeah. uh, you know, I think it was for me. It was part of the. It's part of the um, challenge, if you will. And you know, I think I'm I'm severely. Uh, uh, I'm I'm definitely attracted to a challenge reward yeah, yeah. cycle. And so that was just another challenge. Like you see someone else, like I remember when I got on tour, you know, you see someone else with a sponsor and you're like, well, mm-hmm. where's mine? So, or, you know, and, and, you know, when you're that age, like getting, getting skis and stuff is cool. It's like, awesome. So yeah. you kind of get into that, you get into that mode at a young age in the ski industry for sure. Totally. Like, do you think it has anything to do? I, I loved earlier when you talked about your personality a bit, like you said, it's cockiness, but I hear that it's just this self-belief, like you believed in yourself. And I'm wondering, is that something that you did in your letters? Like, did you believe in yourself and you told other people, like, believe in me too, this is what I'm going to do. Um, was that something that driven you, like that drove you that, that core, like, I can do this, believe in me, trust me, have my back. Yeah. And, and I think it, you know, it's funny. I remember I got denied, um, I remember one of the one thing that uh, I, I did believe in myself, and uh, and one time I I got passed over by one ski sponsor that then sponsored a teammate of mine, and I mean that pissed me off badly. Like I was like really motivated heavily by that for a while. Um, so and uh, you know I think part of that is because I always believed I was better. Right. Like I felt like I had uh, more, more than anybody else and, and, or I could get there. Like, I think part of that too, is that I felt like I could figure out, I could figure it out. So yeah, I think that all ties, ties together, I guess, you know, I don't know if you call that ambition or, or competitiveness or whatever, but yeah, that stuff all, all, I love, uh, I love all tied it. together. <laughs> Actually, that, that leads us into the, into the question. What, what is a champion to you? Like when you kind of describe what a champion is what does that mean to you yeah yeah i like that that's a good one april what is a champion yeah i i think uh you know i it's probably i mean it's hard it's hard to put it in one word i, I think this this guy buster posey just retired a catcher so he popped into my mind um and i don't often compare it to like the ball and stick sport guys but but i i do think there is some correlation between you know digging in when it's really hard and when, when, and the harder it gets, the more you sort of uh, dig in. And I only thought of him because he's like, I think the guy's in, in a lot of pain in general, his body's getting through a lot as a catcher and he, he kind of stuck it out for a hundred some odd games this year. And, and, you know, the, the more it got deeper in the season, the more he caught and all that stuff. And, and I do think it's kind of a separating factor is, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, not digging into it like in a bad way, but sort of, not not afraid to do the hard things um and when when you don't necessarily want to and then i mean also there's the 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 empathetic side of it too obviously and then you know i think there's the understanding uh that it's not always going to result in being a champion and so i think you know being willing to do it even with no promised result 
you know, and, and that could go for competing or helping someone out or, you know, uh, in business and life, just kind of being able, being willing to go there and endure some uncomfortable situations with a prospect of, of not, not being rewarded. I think that's sort of, uh, you know, with the risk of not being rewarded yeah. is, is, is sort of, I guess, what I would define as I love champion. It. Just, what is it? Addicted to the journey, not the outcome. Yes. Yeah. That's you. You always seem to be able to put it in like a a, a more a more uh, uh, a, a, a much smoother a much smoother uh, succinct uh, uh, fashion. So I appreciate I'm just, that, really. That's pretty. That's I'm really just sitting good. here, like taking all the words in. And for the record, everyone. I mean, we have a lot of young listeners who maybe didn't watch you in those Olympics because they weren't born. But you are the only. Yes. You're the only freestyle skier that I remember. So. <laughs> you left your mark <laughs> on on this only kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, we. Gosh, this is fun. I feel like we've just tipped the, um, you know, got the the tip of the iceberg of your stories here. But thank you. I know we're going to have to do Johnny Johnny and point two one day because we do. We have so many more questions, but you've yeah. given us so much time, and and you know our young listeners. As much as we'd hope that they would listen to longer than an hour podcast, we probably won't catch them doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you guys, if you're still, if you're still this listening, like, man, you're doing great. You're doing the hard thing right now. Right? You're doing the this hard is like thing. Four, four car rides to school and back for, for our listeners. <laughs> Johnny, this is going to get you. If your kids listen to it, it's going to get you to Sacramento. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. If I'm lucky. Oh if you're my lucky. God. Oh my gosh. Know. Thank you so much for being with us today. You you're are welcome. amazing. Yeah. So no, that was great. Love, loved hanging out with you guys. And uh, we'll flip this. We'll flip the script on you guys Heck next yes. time. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. So you can go find Johnny and plug into his life and wisdom at Johnny Mosley on Instagram. And he's got a website, johnnymosley.com. And don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast. We are loving our growing tribe and we're so grateful for you all. Till next time, we cannot wait to share with you another exciting guest with some stories of wisdom we can all learn from. 